0: This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by iCracked.com. Think of it as Uber meets iPhone repair. It works around your schedule and travels to you to repair your broken phone on the spot in 30 minutes or less. And your on-demand repair is backed by a lifetime warranty. Whether your repair is for your iPhone or your iPad, iCracked.com's technicians are fast and professional. They even service business accounts. Have them come to you and repair your phone. Go to iCracked.com slash Snell and you'll get a free tempered glass screen protector with your on-demand repair. the incomparable number 297 april 2016 welcome back everybody to the incomparable this is one of our episodes where we are walking through all of the films of hayao miyazaki the great japanese animation director Uh, we have talked about of course kiki's delivery service and my neighbor totoro uh, we are talking uh, in this episode about 1984's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Now, again, we did back when The Incomparable hadn't done almost 300 episodes, and we thought we could do, like, all of the Joss Whedon TV shows in one episode. We did an episode about Miyazaki. Yeah. I thought we were young and stupid. Just an episode. And we talked about it briefly then, but uh, now we're going back because, you know... These podcasts aren't going to post themselves, and we're going to talk about them individually, you know, a couple of years. So, Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, is what we talked about this time. Let me tell you who's on the Miyazaki Club. Uh, you heard him. Uh, he's complaining already. It's Steve Lutz. Hi, Steve. I- I'm not complaining. I'm just pointing out
1: how how naive we were to think we could get through such fine works in yeah, it's a clump.
0: True. It's true. Also, this nut tastes really weird. That was my favorite line. I wrote it down. <laughs> From this movie, this nut tastes really weird. Uh, Erica Ensign was laughing at strange notes about the taste of nuts. Hi.
2: Hello. I'm I'm happy you finally got into my favorite Miyazaki movie.
0: Oh, very nice. Admittedly, I haven't
2: seen that many of them, so maybe it's a slightly skewed
0: sample. All right. Aline Sims is also out there. Hello and welcome to Miyazaki Club.
3: I think there were more seeds than nuts. I mean, I don't know. It looked like couscous or something.
0: Yeah, I know. He just yeah. in the, in the, he says this nut tastes really weird. Yeah. And she says, it's, says not- it's good for you. <laughs> that was it. I was like, OK, interesting exchange. Good. He could eat a bootful of them. I, uh, I <laughs> and wouldn't be boot. Miyazaki Club without John Syracuse. Hello.
4: I'm assuming we'll all get our own fox squirrels at the end of this episode. Like maybe we should mm, check darn under well our seats. Better. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to the fox squirrels' appearance in the upcoming Ratchet and Clank movie. Pointy ears.
0: I'm with you. yes. Okay, he looks just like Ratchet or Clank, rather. No Ratchet. <laughs> Whatever. Oh no. <laughs> uh, so uh, 1984 it's uh it's nausicaa it's post-apocalyptic there are lots of bugs there are some ostriches that are written
4: yeah let me let me just do the opening i know it's gonna seem like this is you're gonna do every scene step by step i'm not i just want to say a few words about the the very you know we've done the credits and there's the, the opening sequence so I feel john
0: like... this is not
4: an opening statement it's a
0: statement about the opening right exactly oh, like, okay, because
4: you're it. not gonna it's not i'm not gonna we're not gonna <laughs> you know, do an a, opening statement we're gonna do a good fellas and go through this thing a scene at a time but i feel like the way this movie opens is just so so wonderful starting from the credits of we already talked about it with the sort of the backstory given to you in a, in a compressed way with the beautiful mural murals changing to the 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 live action, quote unquote, but, you know, animation of, of present day. Uh, and we see Nausicaä flying. If you've seen the movie before, you know who it is on the little flying wind uh, wing. And she lands and she's wandering through this weird looking, uh, you know, forest or jungle or whatever. Her face is entirely covered, something that they did in, uh, in The Force Awakens as well goggles mask everything you can't even tell uh, anything about this person and they do like a slow reveal where eventually she pulls up the goggles and you can see her eyes and she does some more stuff um and then uh, she's there with the the quiet moment on top of the ohm shell which oh. is yet another instance of my uh my emblematic of all the anime that I like possibly emblematic of all anime moment where It's a quiet moment where she is sitting under the ohm shell, and the the spores, which look like snow, are just falling, and it is dead silent, and there's no music, and she's just just watching the stuff fall. That is in the same slot as looking up through the water droplets in your diving goggles in Ghost in the Shell, or Kiki sitting on the hill listening to the radio with the wind blowing at the the beginning of uh, Kiki's delivery service. That every anime movie that I like has to have that moment where it's quiet reflection, no music, no sound effects, and some beautiful scene involving nature. And then, of course, she hears the you know thing going on and goes off to, to save Lord Yupa, which is her first major act in the movie, aside from finding the shell, is saving this, uh, this old guy who's supposedly the world's best swordsman. Um, and then at the end of that scene, you finally get the full reveal of not just her eyes, but her entire face and her hair as she sort of exuberantly tears off her mask and runs over and gives him a big hug. I think that whole intro of leading you into who this character is bit by bit, uh, while showing you that for the rest of this movie, not only will she be the center of it, she's got her name in the title after all, but she will be driving the action. Like, she does things. It, it, everything that happens in this movie that has any consequence is because of her for the most part. And she starts right right away of like, I'm going to go, I, I'm going to find the shell, I'm going to save this character, I'm going to bring this fox squirrel home. Um And that's one of the things I love about this movie and one of the reasons I was one of the first Miyazakis I showed my children, even though uh, there are, you know, a couple of rough slash scary parts where they were scared of the bugs for a little bit, is because it shows in a matter of fact way, a unconventional character being essentially a conventional hero without making a big deal about it. Mm
2: -hmm. I do kind of love that that she is revealed so slowly at the beginning that you don't really know. Being mean, who she is or her age, which I guess (laughs) her age may be a little iffy uh, overall, even by the end of the movie. But but yeah, it's not revealed. You don't quite get an idea of how young she is. I don't think she's as young as she sounds um, until until quite uh, later on. And what you're really seeing is how capable and competent she is. This Mm -hmm. is a character who truly kicks ass. And I mean, you know, it's not to the point where she's, you know, killing the hell out of guys left and right yet. But we're still seeing
3: her (laughs) be pretty awesome at the beginning. Yeah, that's, that's one of the first things that I appreciated about the movie, because um, it's been a few years since I've watched it, like since my husband and I got together in 2007. It's been a long time. <laughs> um, and so I didn't remember a lot of it. And... Uh, she's prepared like she's prepared and she's smart and she's resourceful and you can tell that like we don't have the story on her yet but we can tell that people depend on her to do things um like all all right in the first i don't know three minutes um and i think that's pretty amazing and that's one of the things that miyazaki does so well is establishing um strong female characters immediately or almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get to see her taking the, the gunpowder out of a
2: shell yeah. and sprinkling it around <laughs> yeah. to be able to prickle off uh, that
4: ohm. We need a Mythbusters on that because I feel like <laughs> that wouldn't work. But, uh, <laughs> but get, get, Mythbusters, get yourself F- find an ohm shell. Yeah, step one.
2: <laughs> I think ohm shells are, are extra susceptible to the particular type of gunpowder that they use in the post-apocalyptic fusion. Solid
0: head cannon. Very nice.
4: Yep. So the, the 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 other angle on her being a, a person of action and like, you know, she's doing things. She is not the, she is driving the plot is that the the thing that she does saving this this great swordsman because he was in trouble and she saves him. Uh, again, all matter of fact, she saves him like it, this movie emphasizes many 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 times that heroism does not equal quote unquote manliness, right? She doesn't kill the ohm OK, that's not how she achieves victory over over the, the insect. She the, the job to be done is to save the person. She resolves the conflict by calming the ohm down. Right. And sending him back into the same thing with, with the fox squirrel. The fox squirrel is cute. She wants to pet it. it. You know, it's freaking out. It's scared. It bites her. She resolves that conflict, not by teaching the fox squirrel who's boss or having the fox squirrel come to respect her as the, you know, the alpha or whatever. She does it by calming it. And it's not, again, they don't hit you over the head with it, but almost every conflict, her interaction in that conflict is to try to do something good. She's the good guy, right? Try to save people, save people who might even be your enemy or whatever, and to resolve conflict, conflict between people who are acting out of fear. And she is, I mean, it's not that she doesn't have fear. She has it. She has fear. She has anger. But she's always trying to de-escalate. And that's the other thing I love about this is, like, she is put in normal situations and she has to be the hero But she doesn't do the stereotypical, like, physical dominance, manly, macho solution to these problems. She is not a killing machine. She's not even the world's best swordsman. She can barely lift the sword that she uses in anger later in the movie. Actually, she's a pretty solid killing machine,
2: Yeah, truth be told. She is. She just shies away from it because she doesn't want to be a killer, which I think is even more admirable than not being able to do it in the first
1: place. One of the only problems that I have with the character is she's almost too competent (laughs) <laughs> she never really makes a misstep. I mean, the closest thing to a misstep is that she gets a little overwrought, I guess you could say, when her father is killed, and she kills a bunch of dudes, and then she realizes that was a mistake. But I mean, almost every choice she makes is the right choice in this film.
4: But not not obviously so, because there's a particular scene later in the movie when she is taken hostage, like she's going to be one of the volunteer hostages or whatever, and all the, the little girls in the village are like, oh, Nazica, no, okay, don't go. We look up to you, so on and so forth, right? um and she's like oh it's okay i'll be back you know she, she's calming them down that's when they give her the bad taste they bring nuts. her their
1: sack of nuts yes
4: <laughs> right right and they they go through the whole thing um and she's all smiles and then she gets on the plane and the music cue when she gets onto that plane is the most discordant note in the entire movie and you realize she's putting a brave face on this but she understands and all the adults understand and you the viewer are now meant to understand that most likely she's not coming back because she's going to be dead like, or everyone in the village is going to be dead, or she's going to be dead, or she's never going to see anyone again. So it's not as if she glides through this movie as if uh, victory is certain. And they try to emphasize that by saying, things are going badly, and she's putting a brave face on it, but she understands this what the situation is. Now, she's, she's able to, you know, endure, but she's a very sort of... Uh, she has a lot of perseverance and and gusto, and she's and naivety of however young she is, but she has her dark moments too when she's down there in her little thing with her with her weird little plants, and she understands that <laughs> things are going badly for her whole valley, and chances are everybody she knows, including herself, could soon be dead.
2: Yeah, I I actually like the fact that she is so near infallible in this movie because it's just it is a joy for me to watch it. And I'd like sometimes I just like a little bit of escapism and escapism for me at its best is where I have something like this, where there's a character who, you know, sometimes bad things happen to them but it comes out all right in the end and there's somebody that I can really identify with and and feel good about identifying with because they're they're doing the right thing pretty much all the time and the the dark moments that she has are really more of self-doubt and fear of the future and that is something that I think probably everybody can relate to I know I certainly can so so the the dark patches that she has to go through are things that are a little bit more relatable to me than making a choice that goes really poorly for her
0: kingdom because, you know, I'm not a princess. Does she have to be a princess, by the way? That was one of the things that I was thinking.
4: Is like, They you all know... have to be princesses, apparently. All the women in this story, princesses. That gets to the core question that I have towards the middle of my notes here that we can address at any time, which is this, the, the, the central question of this movie, does Nausicaä live in a patriarchy? Hmm.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I had that Disney princess moment of like, well, of course she's great and she's a princess, but I'm not sure she needs to be at any point in the story other than the fact that she's, that her father gets killed. But I mean, I'm not sure that was, I just, it, it seemed to me like almost like extra that wasn't, didn't need to be there. That she was, oh, she's not only all these great things, but yes, of course, she's also the princess.
1: Well, I don't think it necessarily marks her as, as inferior so much as it it just points out the fact that she's, kind of a leader amongst her people, as is Kushana
4: is a, is a princess as well, right? but is she a leader like that's what i'm saying like in in the movie obviously nausicaa thinks of herself as just another person but how does everyone else treat her how is she living in a world that is essentially that treats women as lesser look at all the other women in in their village what are they doing what are their jobs what is their role in the society obviously she's the the daughter of the king and so she's an important person she's respected and of course people respect her and look up to her mostly because she's a good person but at various points in the movie like when the plane crashes and they're like everyone to the to, to the plane crash site even the boys even like, the boys they, want, right? all, I noticed they want all hands on deck to help rescue no one considers having the women come but then later the you know the women they're all they're not in like you know the head scarves are covered but they're mostly covered up and they're mostly carrying around food or children and yet here is nausicaa living in this world which is not a world where it's like oh we're all equal here and we have lots of people in this village who are just like nausicaa she is sort of out of I feel like she is out of step with the sort of rebuilding feudal society that is coming from the ashes of the world and she's essentially living in a typical Disney princess world but she is not conforming to the Disney princess stereotype and for the most part the other people in her village village let her get away with it like we don't see anyone poo-pooing her or trying to keep her down like they encourage her to do things but Every other woman I see is I I don't feel like she needs to be a princess. I feel like it's like and on top of her being
0: this amazing person who goes out into the wastelands and salvages things from the ohm, which you're you're it's funny that you mentioned uh, Rey Ray in Star Wars because boy, that really is quite similar, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. they that she oh and did I mention she's also the princess of the valley it's like really did she need to be that 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 was my only point is like she's so awesome as it is it's like of course she's also the princess she's got all the things
2: well I mean maybe to get in a little bit d- deeper uh I think perhaps what John was saying actually leads to what you're saying Jason the fact that this is sort of a patriarchy uh, and it really does seem to be I mean you also get the scene later where she is saved by the women of the uh, Pejit society uh, who are all right. trapped you know together it's just women, women and children, and children. right? Yeah. yeah. So the fact that she is her father's daughter, that she is the princess of the town, means that she has had the freedom to develop all of these cool skills and run away on her glider and explore the the forest and, and all that kind of stuff. Perhaps if she wasn't a princess, she wouldn't have gotten to do any of that stuff and we wouldn't have a movie well, in the first place.
0: That, that's true. And also her being used as a hostage, right? It, it makes sense mm-hmm. as, a, as a, even though her father is killed here, it makes sense that you, that's what happens oftentimes to the the uh, girl children of royalty in these sorts of situations right is they they're the ones who end up being used as the hostages so she is chosen to go off with the other hostages
4: uh, at that point in the movie but but all the other hostages are men like if you look at there are no other women dressed like she is in her village all the other women are dressed in these sort of like house dresses and or they're you know for out in the fields or whatever she is dressed not necessarily like a man but unique now again she's the hero of the movie she's going to stand out so on and so forth but she is. I like that because the way she acts is a, is a setting an example of saying you may live in a society that is regressive or backwards, which makes sense because you know the world was destroyed a thousand years ago and you're just rebuilding society, mm-hmm. and you know it's a monarchy and there's a, you know hereditary rule, and now that your father, the first thing they do when they go there is they run right up and kill the king guy because the whole idea is yeah. you just go find the guy who's in charge and you got to cut you know, sever the head, and that that would essentially end end her chances of, you know, even if she survived this, she's not going to be in charge of anything anymore, right? Because so yeah, they're once, taking the, over. once the father is killed, it's not like she's going to take over, because you can't have a woman in charge, but she is so out of step with that, and that's that's something I like in, in these kind of movies, is I like to feel like, not that it's realistic, because it's all made-up fantasy stuff, but, like, to show an unjust world, and someone overcoming that rather than showing like oh everybody's all equal and that's why we can have all these heroes who are are unconventional to show here's an unconventional hero who is forced to live who has found a way somehow to do this great thing and you know maybe it's like a a, you know like you said escapism fantasy found a way to be like this seemingly against all odds within a society that is even more sort of backwards than the one you're currently living in I don't know how much I'd make
1: of their, at least the Valley of the Wind being backwards, because it's clear that once Gilles is dead, that they all look to her as a yeah. leader, the men and the women both.
4: Well, because she's great at everything. Well, she is great <laughs> at
1: everything. That's true. but The
0: other princess is is in charge and the officer kind of only gets to freelance when she's not around. So she's... yeah Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear true. that
1: these societies have formed in a traditional patriarchal way, and that there's a division of labor, and the men are the ones doing the heavy, the hard labor.
4: The same thing with Kushana, I think, uh, the the woman with the armor and everything who comes, she's and yeah. that's another Miyazaki trope of having having the big bad be a woman too. But again, she is clearly an exception. Like it's an army full of men; she's leading men. Mm-hmm. And her second in command is a man, and the only reason she's in charge is because she's so exceptional, exceptionally well. She's she's you know,
0: royal, right? I think I think that this is the case where the royalty part goes above the uh, who's in you know men men and women part right it's like well first there's royalty and then there's men and then there's women <laughs> and so she's royalty and so she's up on up on the, on the top, and she's really good at what she does, and she has is. you know clearly been through a
2: lot and and survived. Although you know one of her only comments about that is the fact that the you know whoever she takes as a husband eventually yeah.
4: is is going to see worse. That's where the attitudes of the script writers sneak through in mm-hmm. weird little ways. Like there are always those little comments. You're like, whoop, well, that doesn't seem to fit. Oh, but that was taken as so conventional that it would never you know. And like you, the years pass and you realize that's a that's a weird that's a weird way to frame that. Would she really? Is that how she would? frame this i don't think the character would but the man who was writing the character certainly did
0: Mm -hmm. let's take a break so i can tell you about our sponsor on this week's episode it is i cracked Dot com. Now, I've said this before. Uh, we took a hike with my son, and uh, my wife wanted to take a picture of herself with my son, and they did a little selfie pose, and it was funny. He was kind of writhing around, it, like, no, no, I don't want to have my picture taken, joking around, and the phone dropped, and it was in a protective case. It didn't matter. It landed on a rock, and the screen shattered. It can happen to you, too. It is a tragedy when your screen shatters. But what if you're so busy that you just don't know when you're going to get that screen repaired? Well, guess what? iCorrect provides phone and iPad repair, and they'll come to you. It's great for busy professionals and businesses who just don't have time to wait days or spend hours getting their phone fixed. Fast, convenient, professional iPhone repair at the time and location of your choosing. That's the important part here. It's at your home, at your office, at a coffee shop, wherever they will work around your busy schedule. They power a network of more than 5,000 on-demand phone repair technicians in 600 or more cities in 600... In more than 600 cities across the United States, all the technicians are rigorously trained and background checked. And iCrack.com is providing a special offer for Incomparable listeners. You can get a free tempered glass screen protector that will be installed along with your on-demand repair. That's right. You'll get extra protection so it maybe won't happen again. You can request your repair anytime. Just save this for when the moment is right and something horrible has happened to your device. Go to iCracked.com slash Snell. That's iCracked.com slash Snell. Thank you to iCracked for sponsoring this week's Incomparable. In the opening sequence, uh, the first few scenes of the movie, where she's out in the desert and 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 in the and that she finds the shell and she charms the ohm who's angry and has the red eyes and all of that, there is a whole lot of dialogue of one person talking to nobody. <laughs> explaining everything yeah. that happens. And that I, I feel like for all the strength of the visuals of that part of the movie and the world building, I think it's really interesting. And and like the bugs, just the ohm, I'm fascinated. I could kind of watch I kinda want a screensaver of just the ohms just kinda like zipping along because it's they're fascinating. But uh the dialogue is like just yeah, I, I, at moments, I found it really painful. Like we are just going to dump all of this out. With oh, I'm just a character talking to the air. Hey, let me tell you about the life that I'm leading. And I thought that that was not so not so strong.
1: Yeah, I don't know the progeny of this film. Whether it started as a manga or it did or what? But yeah. yeah, that that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense because there's so much unexplored backstory in this thing. It feels like much longer source material, like a like an entire set of manga. I don't know what they call the series. Uh, In that particular form, but or a a full season of a TV series that just got compressed down into movie length. I mean, there's just, there's so many unanswered questions, and I, I don't think there's any way to approach it, I guess, other than to dump it all at the front
4: yeah uh, they need to they need to establish the minimum I think they they did a reasonably good job of not overdoing it in terms of like how many lines are there and how much space is there between There is the whole opening, which is almost speech three, but they do have to get a few points at. You have to understand that this place is poison, and if you breathe it, you'll die because that's gonna become important later for the plot. You have to understand that these things are big bugs and that they're not necessarily enemies of the humans, but they're you know skittish, and if you mess with them, uh you're gonna get killed, and you have to understand that the valley is protected from everything that's happened by the wind and all this other stuff. And they need to get that out some way. And they, they get most of the backstory in the sort of the equivalent of the crawl, which is this terrible narration in, in the dub um, and, and a wall of text. But yeah, having her talk to herself, not the most artful way to do it, but she's not, monologuing non-stop she you know especially if you see the time gap she says a few things to herself then does stuff then sits underneath mm-hmm. the home shelf for a while and looks around then then listens yeah. for a sound that she heard then runs over there and it's it's not the best but i've i've definitely seen worse and because it starts so slowly with the slow reveal and the lots of not talking and just looking at the world. Uh, it never really bothered me. That sort of dogs the movie elsewhere, too, though. I mean, it's not just up at the front. Like she,
1: she falls through the sand into the forest and like within <laughs> 20 yeah, seconds that, also she's the realized, of that oh, these trees, like they purify the water possible. and then they die and then these crystals descend and, oh, it's all explained now. Yes. I, I have, like have that, a chart uh, of the
0: ecosystem over here on the cave wall. If you'd like to see it,
1: that feels like an entire like two or three episode arc or something. You know that just got distilled down into its its thinnest essence. Yeah, you know, so we could get on to the next plot point.
4: They try to shorthand it by saying this is like the sand in my room under the castle to try to say because she has spent all that time there, she understands this. She makes the connection. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's not a major point in the movie. They just want to say, oh, she's figured it out. This is like that, and that's you know.
1: This is such the uh,
4: the 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 diametric
1: opposite of the other Miyazaki films that we've watched, though, like uh, Kiki's and and Totoro, where the plot is like there's maybe 30 seconds of plot that's extended out to two hours. And this is about seven
4: days worth of plot that's scrunched down Mm. into two
1: hours a very different experience
4: it's like mononoke and that there is this complicated plot and and you know different different factions or who are fighting over something and there's the premise and there's the whole you know world problem and they really it is a bigger story that they want to like you could you could have made this into three movies if you wanted but uh yeah the longer i've never read the the comics either but that that longer version is uh surely filled with much more detail about this but this is the like i feel like this is one of the most conventional stories miyazaki has ever done because you could do a straight-up live-action oh, yeah. version of this, and it is it is very straightforward. It, post-apocalyptic, there's a story, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. It There is no weird diversions. There's no, like, you know, where the hell is this even going, and is this even a story? It's is very, very compact, and lots of his other movies, I feel like, riff on this and slowly start to tear apart this formula, but this one is just so... has such good bones, I feel like. That uh, the, the the clumsiness of the exposition, especially in the dub, because then you can just like read the subtitles, and, and it definitely does bother you less. Has never bothered me because I always felt like this is this is movie shorthand that that most movies always do, and this movie is aimed at not children so much, but maybe teenagers. So it's not trying to be adult and sophisticated in the same way that maybe you you would ask of a modern action movie.
0: I'm not really recapping the plot, and there is a lot of it. So we, we have, I feel like we covered a lot of this. This it, We've got this initial post-apocalyptic world. There are lots of bugs. There is right. the ohm shell. Clint
1: Eastwood rides into town on an ostrich wearing a gas mask and leg warmer. <laughs> yep. <That's
2: accurate. laughs> the leg warmers in this movie are sweet. The leg warmer game, really hot. Okay, so
0: let's talk about the 80s <laughs> Sorry, so it's for a moment.
1: 1984.
0: Yeah, it's a peak. Peak leg warmer. Some of this, the music in this movie is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a note at one point where I wrote down music cues from 1984, where all yeah. of a sudden this timeless story, then the, suddenly there's a.
3: <coughs> <laughs>
2: I felt like I was playing a video game for a moment there.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: I have the phrase "painfully 80s" in my note. <laughs> yeah. I, I, if I had this phrase in my notes, it would say "wonderfully 80s." Mm. Painfully 80s. <laughs> wonderfully
1: 80s. I should qualify that. It's the end of a note that says the music in this stands out more than in the other Miyazakis I've seen. And the music in Totoro and Kiki's are both great, mm-hmm. but here it's—I I think it drives the action of the film in such a key way that
4: I—is it always Joe Hisaishi that? Uh, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. That's the, the same guy does all this music, which is mind blowing. If you think about think about the range between like the. But, right, I, I mean, not so much in the '80s portions, but in in some of the others where things are a little more majestic
0: sounding.
1: And it's the, just there, there were the... there were a
0: couple of cues that reminded me of when of the Terminator, the original Terminator, where it's like yes, yeah. totally. Yeah. Or quite frankly, music from 1984. And what, it was striking because so much of it is classic. The the movie feels classic. The music feels classic. And then there are a couple of points where it is just suddenly this is a movie from 1984, <laughs> not 1985, not 1983 it's from 1984 (laughs) right on the nose and you know it's
1: all it's all erased when they get to the small girl doing the la 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 part yes Mm, a
2: song that will never ever leave my head ever (laughs) it's been in there since i saw this in 1995
3: i was really struck by their use of silence too like there's there's definitely that 80s synth sound all over the place but there are giant swaths where it's just silent and the dialogue. And I was thinking if that were made today, like if someone were to re rewrite the music for this, there would not be so much quiet. And I thought that that was um, – I don't know if that's like a 1984 versus 2016 difference or if it was a very intentional stylistic choice at the time. Um, but it was – it was fascinating to me like we go through this whole dramatic scene where the ship the the airship is going down because it's been shot down and they're like gliding in a glider and trying to save you know trying to save the um the other craft that's gliding along and it's just quiet. It's not like dramatic music. It's mm-hmm. not you know it's not like peril. It's just nothing.
4: Is that a Miyazaki thing John because that definitely has been in
1: previous in the other two that we watched.
4: I would say it's an anime thing where you drop out the music and usually what they're dropping out the music for is so you can hear whatever sound effect that, that, that the, the director or whoever is in creative control of the film feels is most emblematic of this thing. So when we do the next anime episode, there'll be a similar type of thing. But sometimes they'll say, like, uh, there are many sounds going on in this scene, but the one I want you to hear and concentrate on is the sound of the wind even though there would be sounds of engines and sounds of explosions or sounds of flames. I want you to think about the sound of the wind, right? Or when they cut out everything, like uh, later in the movie, when they, they have, she's, uh, she's trying to convince the thing, holding the baby ohm to not shoot her or whatever. There is music there. Um, and then or, or I forget one, one of the two scenes, they do a slow-mo thing and they cut out the music and the sound effects, but then they, they bring you back in the whooshing because the, what they want you to feel is the, the whooshing of her going past. So usually the dropouts are, you know, for drama um, and most of the time, with the exception of the one in Kiki, where they really drop out everything because they want you to hold your breath when you see if she's gonna catch Tombo, right? Right. Um, they they've put they want it. It's usually a nature sound, basically, and because they want you to think about think of when you were in a similar situation even though there was lots going on what is the one thing if they could use smell they would like what is the one thing that that brings you back sense memory wise to a moment in your life that might have been likeness or that evokes this particular encounter or scene or setting or whatever
0: yeah uh, yeah i like um but we mentioned the silence at the beginning too and the wind again miyazaki we're talking about wind sounds of wind Um, I wanted to mention flying. So I watched The Wind Rises, wind in the title, uh, which is uh, a recent Miyazaki where he, um, he, he, it's all about airplanes and making airplanes and dreams of flying and things like that. And um, I was struck watching this about all the flying that's in this. You've got the, you've got the glider. Uh, you've got the mechanics of, like, tethering the gliders to the, the, the powered craft. You've got plane, slow plane crashes and fast plane crashes and dogfights in clouds and dogfights not in clouds. And uh, if I had to say there's a unifying thing about this movie above all else, I mean, the, the, you know, it, it, it's action in the sky. There's just a whole lot of action in the sky. Um, yeah, there's a lot of big bugs flying around. Too. And there are
4: yeah, bugs. Me, a lot of bugs. Mia's Kiki loves planes. In case you haven't figured this out, every, every movie that I saw he can the wind in, rises. I know he loves fly- planes. That, I mean, but that was like a, a career capper. Every one of his movies, if he can find oh, yeah. an excuse to have a flying thing, a flying contraption, a plane right. of some Sometimes kind. Sometimes
0: it's zeppelins and girls on brooms, but you know, other times it's planes.
4: Yeah, I mean, just think of how Kiki flies it, like a broom. Like there's nothing special a about flying the flying bicycle, like, for instance, right? But but think of how think of how Kiki looks when she's flying. How much how how much effort was put into make it look like. F- uh, flying on a broom is not just, we talked about this in the Kiki show, you don't just sit there and then it goes from point A to point B like it's a monorail, right? Flying on a broom looks dangerous and, and skittish and like you're balancing on a wooden thing high above the sky. He is obsessed with with uh flying machines and the idea of flying and it is in all of his movies uh this one yeah this one is like totally like the doodles of a middle schooler of like i can make some these planes look like they're made out of lead it's like how could that even fly the the planes a they look like bugs which is great because like you know the society would build flying things uh based their styling and design based on the things they see flying like the bugs uh, and b there's just plane after plane two wings uh, you know four wings wings in the back wings in the front round wings stubby wings the the unfolding wings of the gunship the, the the glider thing he just goes hog wild yeah i i love the um i loved all the plane stuff i thought I thought it was
0: really interesting i i love actually i kind of love the destruction of it too that that, that we have that we had that whole crash at the beginning or near the beginning, right? Where the huge this huge ship that turns out is loaded down with this weapon. Um and and she's she gets on her collider, which is again her glider is one step away from being Kiki's broom. Right? Um, she gets on her glider and she's like shouting, "Turn, turn!" to the giant airship. That's not going to work. It smashes. It breaks into pieces. The pieces rain down. Almost everybody's dead except for the one princess. Again, boy, it's all princesses who <laughs> who says one thing before she expires.
4: It's just it's spectacular. She's mortally wounded. They have they they try to get that across without showing you blood and guts. But the idea is she opens it up and he's like, "Yeah, that's a good you no, know, I'm not a doctor, but that's you're not gonna make it,
0: <laughs> yeah, she seems okay though that's the problem with it. It's like, well, you know you're fatally wounded in a very gentle way, but fatal, trust me
4: in a way on that's visible clothes. as soon as we open your shirt, but yeah,
1: mm-hmm. otherwise, that's not really bad, care.
4: yeah, <laughs> yeah. This movie is scary enough to young children. I don't think they needed to add gore,
1: but they 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 do add it later when her her shoulder is sliced. Yeah, that's not the type of
4: gore that I can imagine she was seeing under under the uh, Princess Lestelle or whatever I mean, her name is in her. That, her route, yeah. But yeah. Well, you, you have, have a, a whole light.
0: plane crash, right? I mean, presumably they're just like flaming and and bodies and pieces of bodies and wreckage and all this stuff but
2: yeah we get to see the graves later but we don't actually see the bodies that they're putting into those graves
0: right right but it's still it's spectacular and that that, that is one of the things that uh, stuck with me from the last time i watched it and that i i remembered as i watched it again that and you get the dog fight in the with the clouds where they go into the cloud but and also by the way i don't think this is how storms work that there's like <laughs> a cloud and it's puffy on the outside, but inside it's really, really bad. So, you can, you, revisit that in Castle in the Sky. Apparently, yeah. that
4: is how storms work. And, uh,
0: I guess, I mean, it's like a thunderstorm, I guess, is sort of how it works, but it seems very much like it's just kind of a puffy cloud with bad stuff inside. So, you can go inside, it's like Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, basically. You can go in mm-hmm. or you can stay out. Those are your options. You can choose and, and where you want to fight. Um, but uh, anyway, I like the flying stuff. Miyazaki is obsessed with flying. I think the glider is beautiful. I love that there are different... He's obviously thought of all the different ways you can fly her glider. Like, you can fly it from
4: below. You can fly it from above. You know, you can, you've you got, like, different ways you can the do two, it. The two-person thing where one person lays on the, on the board and yeah. one person's up on the little mm-hmm. suspender strap thing. Here's how you land it. You can also jump off of it. While if you're you moving style, towards something
0: yeah. and fly and 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 crash into it, which is a maneuver she uses late in the movie, it's just falling with style. There's a lot of flying. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and control. it's interesting to compare
1: the animation of somebody who's super competent at flying with the Kiki's animation, where she's just awful at it.
4: Yeah, but, and both of them look dangerous. Like when she, you know, says, "Oh, can you can you bring the uh, the Om uh, eyeball shell home?" It's really hard for me to fly with it. Then she leaps yeah. off a cliff, hanging to the bottom of her glider, and flips around the front of it to get onto it. It's like <laughs> she, she's not really showing off, but you're just like eh, you watch her do it. You're like, maybe just eh, oh, all right. All right well, fine.
0: now she's not weighing down with that thing. She can do the style <laughs> points.
3: Well, she's like a kid who's who's put a lot of time into like learning how to skateboard or, or, you know, whatever. Like she's you can tell like it's very evident that she's put a lot of time into doing this. And from that, we can extrapolate even further that she's done a lot of exploring. And um, I I think that that's a really cool little detail that um, it's not, you know, it's one of those subtle things um, that kind of speaks to who she is and what she does a lot more than you know that exposition would be if it's like well this is my seventh day out this Mm. week (laughs) Um, we have this experience we see her being an expert
4: yeah can't be safe on a skateboard mister
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, should we talk about the fox squirrel Um, we mentioned Tato mentioned mentioned the fox squirrel earlier she gets the fox squirrel the fox who looks I I wrote down or Pokemon one of those and yes um, and it bites her and she doesn't react I still say ratchet. and then it hangs on her shoulder for the rest of the movie in fact at one point she's like been flung somewhere uh and has uh, flung in the air and she's fallen to the ground and she may be dead but he's still like hanging around by her which i thought was i thought was
4: interesting he's he's very well, he's waiting to get down her shirt yeah clearly <laughs> <laughs> it's her magic shirt that protects him from all from all injury and flames and toxins and, and toxins, yeah. and toxins yeah. right Mm -hmm. no he's he's
0: he's very special anyway this is a mascot he doesn't talk like g like Gigi, but yeah
4: (laughs) yeah he's fan service and he's there because he's cute and he's there to uh to reveal her character very early in the movie to show how you know that she's gonna let the thing bite her and say see there's no reason for you to be afraid and then he, he feels bad and licks her finger and it's adorable
2: yeah, he's there because it's an anime that's mm-hmm. aimed
4: slightly at children.
2: Like it's right. it's just one of those things that's kind of required. Right. And, and really, I there's one, not many.
4: Other, there's not many other cute animals in this movie. The bugs no. are not cute. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. even the baby Om borderline. Right. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, of all of the the many anime things I've seen with adorable animals, I, I think Taito is probably my number one favorite for most most cute and most the the one that I would most like a stuffed like plush figure of for myself.
0: I have a little, um, Almost, I don't know if I'd say steampunk, but I mean one of the vibes that I get out of this movie too is that this is like dreams of sky pirates and stuff like that, right? It's daring do in the high in the skies, and so that's castle in the sky thing. And of. well, no, yeah, but this well, it really is. It well, it, well, Miyazaki's got enough to spare, but we, we get yeah. it here. We get the <laughs> we got the, the board. They're boarding the ships, and she's flying around. And I feel like the the fox squirrel on the shoulder thing. It is a little like a pirate parrot. It, I mean, it's just it gives her a little <laughs> bit more of a like kind of a dashing like I i am here and i also have a creature on my shoulder because i can do that i'm that cool so that's it struck. also
2: gives us some cute moments like you see you know there's a shot of her that she's just lying down and then suddenly like he just pokes up out of her hair out of nowhere and that's one of the most yeah. charming
0: moments of the movie for me it's just cute and nobody reacts to it uh, there's there is yep. a moment where it emerges and and, and pe- she's talking to people and it's very serious and they're like nobody's like
4: ah there's an animal in your hair nope it's fine whatever yep. Yep. it's a fox squirrel they do that and speaking of genres that this movie uh, evokes the pirates in the sky thing is definitely one but the, the entire movie speaking of you know 80s and stuff is is just as with so much anime is soaked in the the 80s cold war mentality on top of the normal anime where basically every japanese animation is in some way the, the subtext or theme is in some way related to uh nuclear bombs going off because japan <laughs> is the only country that has ever been nuked uh, in anger Everything they make after that has this. if an anime in, has it to an incredible extent. So this thing, the whole Seven Days of Fire and the opening credit sequence yeah. where you have the giants walking with the sticks, the top of their heads are ICBM cones, you know, mm-hmm. like it's it's not subtle at all. It rarely is in an anime subtle. Later in the movie, we'll see a mushroom cloud. Surprise, mm-hmm. is that weird for anime? It's mm-hmm. in every anime. Like you can't, but, but that's this genre. This is a post-apocalyptic one, so of course they're going to do that. And this has the same Totoro-esque thing where you can choose to believe that these people a thousand years later have conceptualized the seven days of fire as if they were giant cone-headed people like smashing cities with their you know right right but then later in the movie you see one you're like oh i guess they were actually big people (laughs) like is it you you know what i mean like it's it's that sort of you depending on how you choose to to think of it like but but it's but it's not it's not subtle in any way and the the overall kind of like what what other live action genres this fit into um, I, I think it feels like a Mad Max style thing you mentioned steampunk but Mad Max and I had a big Mad Max flash when at one point the subtitles of Nausicaa say uh, Nausicaa says who made such a terrible mess of the world and I got an immediate mm-hmm. flash of uh, Mad Max Fury Road who killed the world
2: right? I have that in my new no- my notes right here who killed the world I love that moment
4: yeah hey John I you know what I know about you you love post-apocalyptic movies uh, <laughs> I do, and especially I love the '80s variety where nuclear war—that's good old fashioned apocalypse. That's mm-hmm. old timey That's what that's what mm-hmm. I grew up on. Darn it! <laughs> that's right. This is my yeah. apocalypse, right? And it's it going to nuke everything, and everything will be gone. Uh, and it's all about like humans using really big weapons. And when everything's gone, you get to wipe the slate clean and start over. And you get to decide how that's going to look. And in this world, it looks like bugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: you know? yeah. I think I think John and I have talked before about how we are both suckers for the post apocalyptic stuff. And I guess, you know, we already talked about The Stand. I think uh, disease is is my apocalypse, but I also appreciate this Cold War style. And that was, uh, I think what drew me to the movie in the first place, the first time I saw it way back when I was in college. And I just, it was interesting to see, especially at that time, not knowing as much about anime, to see the darkness of the post-apocalypse idea meshed with such a bright and generally cheerful kind of children's type film and the, you know kind of putting those two things together, there's a little bit of a frisson that really works for me as a viewer. It's, it's like taking, you know, two great tastes that I wouldn't have thought would taste great together, but actually do.
4: Yeah. And they sneak in these really grim moments. Like I've noticed this in, in the recent years that I hadn't noticed for the first many years I saw this. She's on the, the, uh, what, uh, the the ship where she's, uh, captive and she gets saved by the women and they replace her in her cell and everything. Right. And she, mm-hmm. they, they smuggle her out with the dress and she goes into the room with, with the women and the children. Um, and I think there was some men in there with him too, like, uh, and what they have in that room when like the battle ensues and the thing, what, what they have in that room is they have a giant bomb. So basically when those guys finally get through the door, we're going to set off this bomb and kill ourselves and them. Like, that's they're basically using, you know, terrorist suicide, last resort. You're not going to take us live tactics in the room with all the women and the children. And it's it's in passing, and it goes by quickly. But you're like, if you really think about what what life is like for the people living in this world, it's pretty bad. Like, mm-hmm. your town is probably going to be swallowed up by the toxic jungle. You could be killed at any time by any people. There's no real law to speak of. It's survival of the fittest. The future of entire cities, ent- entire fairly large cities and, and peoples and families at, is, you know... A moment away from being destroyed by so many things and everything is so grim that everyone in the room seems grimly determined to blow themselves up like, like it's no big. And then she's just sort of like walking through this story and it's just and think of how many people die. You know, it's this is not a nice world, but it's, I guess it's normalized because they, they've never known any other way. Ahoy, listeners.
0: Episode 300 of The Incomparable is coming up, and we want to get listeners involved, as we did, for episode 200. Here is your mission. If you have ever wanted to ask us a question, podcast-related or not, now is your chance. Record yourself asking us the question. Now, warning, you will not be able to pick a specific panelist to answer your question, so try to keep them general. And you can send us the audio via this URL. Go to tinyurl.com slash incomparable300. You'll get a Dropbox submission form. Upload your audio there and we will consider it for use in episode 300, which is coming very soon. And one final tip, you may want to visit the incomparable.com slash shirt sometime next week. We may have some shirts going back on sale. So check that out. Uh, I I have to say that this is coming coming from the Cold War era. (laughs) Um, If you described like a message movie from the mid 80s, and or, or, or let me put it another way. If you had said, hey, Jason, imagine a message movie from the 80s. What would the messages be? I would probably say violence is bad. Protect the environment. Take care. Be nice to animals and protect the environment. Don't hurt each other. Uh, people want to people want to destroy the world. So you've got to uh, fight against just, human just be nature. Yourself. And and be yourself, right? I so yeah. I, I had a few moments in this where I'm like, I I again, and, uh, this don't is, do drugs and don't just say no, <laughs> stay in school. <laughs> I I just there there are a few moments in here where it is so artfully done that I like it, but at the same time, this is um, what seems I think from the perspective of 2016, kind of innocent in its um, take care of animals. Uh, Be nice to the environment and don't blow things up violently. But that is Mm -hmm. sort of like those are the themes of this. And it's sort of sweet now when I think about it. But again, it did strike me
4: as being a little bit reminiscent of sort of an after school special. And that's why I love it. (laughs) All the other people in the movie, all the other groups are not on that page none of those groups sort of learn the lessons that you were just of course not none of them really none of them really learn oh hey we shouldn't use these super weapons or anything a few select individuals realize it but pretty much everyone else in this movie is trying to do what it takes to stay alive even if it involves killing the entire other city or kingdom or whatever even the people in her village are not really on the high-minded idea oh now we've all learned that we shouldn't use super they don't care there's all these people out of their village they can go back to their farming right uh, they're, it's, you know and they're they're willing to fight them for it they 're not like oh there there is no one here espousing a pacifist philosophy. there is no one here with high minded ideals about the environment now Miyazaki himself i don 't put that in the eighties Miyazaki himself is obsessed with like the environment and pollution, and that 's a thread that runs through all of his movies, and he gets more and more preachy about that as you go on, and even like in the the modern movies like spirited away he 's just going to hammer that in the middle of the movie for like ten fifteen minutes, so you get it like or Ponyo, you know dredging no. up the the junk of oh, like Ponyo. that's that's him that is not. <laughs> That's not the '80s. That's him. He is big on we're destroying. No, the but Earth. in the
0: but in the '80s, this was these were the messages in the '80s. Well, I the feel message
4: like... of the '80s was we're all going to blow ourselves up if we don't be careful. If we don't if we don't get our heads together and realize that you know if escalation in a world where you have enough weapons to destroy the world will eventually end up with the world being destroyed. Like, that is totally the '80s theme, and the theme of all those movies is we should not blow ourselves up. Uh, and here's how easily we could do so if we just let a couple of hotheads be in charge and have these weapons. We should not blow ourselves up. We shouldn't have these weapons that, you know, but Pandora's box is open. So be real careful we don't blow ourselves up. And yes, that that was a lot of the theme. But in this one, I like the fact that, that even at the end, you get the idea that, you know, Nausicaa didn't need to learn this lesson. She already knew it. And everyone else didn't learn the lesson, right? They're just going to be like, oh, we'll go back to our village and Nozick is alive or whatever, and this whole same thing will happen again. And that, that's one of my questions on repeated viewings is they, they show a couple of flashbacks of the ohm. Like, every time the humans have tried to, like, fight back the toxic jungle, the ohm have come out and trampled across them. And during those scenes, they show the ohms trampling, like, skyscrapers. Yeah. So it's just like Zion and the Matrix, where, like, so civilization has been rebuilt three separate times in this thousand years up to the point where you had skyscrapers, and the ohm were like, eh, eh no and and wiped that it all That was what out. I thought, yeah. yeah. Look at Pajit.
1: Pajit has been built up enough that they have a giant dome and it ends up getting trampled by the own. Yeah, and then the, the spores spread.
2: I mean, they're able to build these technological airplanes. I mean, they've got flight right. licked, really.
1: Well, and again, they're talking about at that point how the the toxic jungle or the sea of decay has spread over the years. And so I suspect what's what's happened is that uh, these are some pockets of civilization or at least cities that have survived uh, through the thousand years and then gradually get destroyed over time as the as the sea spreads and the ohms kind well, of... Uh,
4: but, but it's the hubris. It's not that the sea is spreading. It's that the, the, the humans get all uppity and they're like, we have this big city. We've got skyscrapers. Why do we tolerate these big insects in these no-go zones? Why don't we take right. our big weapons, go over there and blow the crap out of them? And every time they try to do that, these big ohms come out and go, eh, and, and smash their bodies into their cities and <laughs> until they're dead and then their bodies become breeding grounds for the next spore so their previously safe city is now all toxic jungle right and so it's that's the, the whole lesson is like his whole thing of being in harmony with nature and everything which is his personal theme and also a big japanese theme of uh you know why couldn't they just been happy in their city they would have been fine but eventually they feel like no men must dominate the earth and you know miyazaki is taking the righteous hand of his own and saying no, you you know, don't don't fight against nature. Nature will always win. And then the later lesson is, see, oh, this toxic jungle stuff is actually doing something, trying to clean up the stupid world that you ruined people. So just leave it alone. If you don't fight with it and you can live in harmony with it in, in the valley, you'll be fine. If you fight against it, uh, it's all going to end in tears. If only they could all have seen that tapestry with the prophecy on it. Indeed. This all could have been avoided. Well, the prophecy was that the guy in blue with the beard is going to come and save everybody, on a, a big golden field. It's just it's just a run of the mill like savior sort of thing. And and I, the first time I saw it, I didn't take much note of it because how many times you see oh this you know the legend of the savior is going to come and save us or whatever. And of course it shows a dude. Like why wouldn't it you know because like, that's the world that she lives in right. Um, and even though it's like well duh you now it goes to the main character and you know it's going to come through. But when, when I was a kid anyway, it totally worked for me in that. It didn't even occur to me that she would be the fulfillment of this prophecy, unlike so many other movies that it's clear from scene one, this is the prophecy main character will fulfill. Well, I
3: think, you know, we're kind of taught that that girls don't do that. So it would be, oh, yeah, of course, this man is going to come and maybe Nausica will help him a little bit and then she'll get in a scrape and he'll have to come rescue her. And then that'll be that'll be the point of the story. But it's not which is amazing and you know going back to Star Wars and talking about Rey that's what I loved about Star Wars too.
4: And and they have to show it to you. They because because it's so unconventional. They have to show you like look bearded guy going morph yeah. into do you get it kids? Cuz you can because if you don't like I mean like I said, yeah. when I saw it as a kid it didn't occur to me and they needed to do that and I was glad they did that. Mm-hmm. It's like Oh, all right. No, I see it. Yep, thanks.
0: I do
1: really like <laughs> the fact that the reason she's in a blue outfit is because her pink dress has been soaked in ohm blood.
0: Yeah, blue <laughs> ohm blood. they're, 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 so they're like horseshoe crabs. The ohm, I want to talk about the, them, the sandworms of this piece, the ohm. <laughs> um I, they're they're uh they're I, I, not cute, but uh, no. I kind of I kind of love them. They're be these big mm-hmm. segmented dome with lots of eyes, sluggy. They're like
3: roly-polies yeah. with
0: and with friendlier tentacles than you usually do the yeah. they have very friendly tentacles and also there's a scene I wrote I wrote down in my notes that I can't decide if Nausicaa uh, really thinks the om can understand her when she talks to them, or if they're just talking, she's like she would talk to a cat. Like no, like they calming, can understand. It. That's, tones. That's, that's
4: another thing that I think it revealed itself on repeated viewings. They mentioned many times, like oh, when the bug is in the village and the guys like, oh, we got to shoot it, and the other guys, like, no, you know, the young young guys like, let's kill it, and the older guys like, no, no, no. If you kill it, if we kill even one bug, like the consequence. Mm, there's no be telling
0: terrible. how like, we'd suffer for a single insect's death. I wrote that down too. Right,
4: and so. They <laughs> As an acknowledgement, and with all the other backstory about the ohm and, like, carrying the baby and the ohm coming and destroy the city, these are not dumb animals. Like, they... they- they understand the concept of revenge that one of them dies. They're going to tell each other about it and come get you all through the toxic jungle. Like word spreads. They're communicating. I mean, they're not, Yeah, the I'm, not sure, humans, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they
0: can understand what she's saying to them when she talks to the baby and trying mm-hmm. to take care of it, but uh, ha-
4: not, not the baby one, but they are, they are established as essentially magical because you've got the glowy things sure. that essentially are healing her. And you, you imagine that they are communing on a level in which they are communicating in a, in a much more sophisticated way. And like that, these, these, these animals, all the bugs, but especially the ohms, are much smarter than like, say, an elephant or any other kind of animal. They're they're smarter than a dog, they're smarter than a dolphin, they are essentially could be the new dominant life form on the planet. Maybe they're not quite as smart as the humans, or maybe they're just, you know, they're arranging themselves in a different way. But uh, if you think of them as just big charging buffalo, you're missing a lot of the uh, the, the the thrust of the plot of the movie. That the idea is that they are They are intelligent, which is supposed to give another angle to the aspect of, like, the humans who hate the bugs and want to destroy them and just treat them as vermin. And it's like, well, not really vermin. Like, they're kind of your competition for uh, ownership of this planet going forward.
1: I don't see that at all. I I see that pretty much everything they do could be pretty much chalked up to instinct. Yeah, the
4: charging, the red eyes. I mean, but the, it, every- you need more than instinct to know that a, an insect in the valley has been injured. So let's go get them. Yeah, but I right? think it's they, they because-
0: represent the ecosystem. Like they're they're one of the forces of the of the uh ecology of right. the planet and they they we speak are for uh, the giant dead trees that drop crystals <laughs> yeah they they're <laughs> a cleansing force, they get angry then they but but they're almost like the like the wind they are a force of nature that is part of this larger uh environment that they're in. I'm not sure that the ohms are gonna be you know building cities anytime soon, but I think they are part of the part of the
4: the the ecology of the planet and and uh when you do things that are bad, they come and smash you. Not building cities, but just the idea that they have communication—that that word spreads among. They don't have written language, well, that's true Ants, but clearly doesn't. they have.
0: Right, right.
4: and more yeah. than more than just pheromones, like the idea that hey, they killed one of our guys over in that village, so let's all get together and go destroy that village, right? Or let's all go get together and destroy that town and sacrifice ourselves. You get the idea that the Om they understand that they are sacrificing themselves; so they're just not mindlessly. I don't. Know. I, I think the Om um are much smarter than. than yeah, you, I you think they are. yeah, I don't get that at all. Yeah, I think, totally I don't agree think so. that they are the force of nature type thing, but I I think that they are they are the clear successors to humans because that's one of the questions in the movies like that I think Nausicaa voices at some point like will will the you know the 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 sea of decay spread and like are are humans going to make it essentially and i feel like if they don't ohms are clearly at the top of the intelligence chain of the various bugs that are in there and they seem yeah. very thoughtful and they seem very social and they seem to care about their young like i mean what what other animal of any intelligence level Amasses the entire herd to go after one baby that mm. never happens in any society, except for something as sophisticated as humans, because other, you know, other big animals don't care about your baby. They're certainly not going to gather all let's guys, let's all go get that baby. That never happens. I feel like, Well, it,
1: no, that's, it, that's basically what it is effectively is that if the baby's being killed, that's like one spore on a tree in the Valley of the wind. It indicates that, you know, there are humans here and the destructors of the planet are here. And therefore that's where we need to go. And that's what we need to crush. Well that's
4: the, that's their plot reason of existence. To me
2: didn't I didn't read intelligence into it as much as sort of a kind of almost mystical wisdom. So they were yeah. yes they 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 were sort of the the speakers for the the for environment the world. in a very yeah in a very in a very sort of just like mystical and wise way. I didn't feel like there was a whole lot of specific piece by piece thought going on, but they had some sort of you know empathy almost that they were able to communicate with naszca Nos- or actually that she was able to communicate with them to get her point across because she's she's got this crazy crazy it, i don't know if it's a skill i don't know if it's supposed to be some sort of like low level telepathy or if she's just that good at at exuding you know she's, the like whisper. she's calm. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> and and they're also um, like compassionate, too. So I think that kind of maybe I'd agree with Erica in terms of like kind of the the wisdom of the earth or like whatever that is. But like once they calm down, it's like, oh, wait, let's assess the situation a little bit. What's happening? Oh, someone someone is hurt. And clearly they weren't this person wasn't hell bent on destroying us. You know, what can we do to help them? And um, yeah, I can I kind of like that
4: theory. Yeah the baby the baby tells them that this girl helped me right, <laughs> right. the baby says okay. hey this this lady who you just trampled and probably basically killed the idea is that the baby om tells the other ones this person helped me uh so bring her back to life with your magic
2: yeah well i, I mean that in itself to me spoke the that they are more than just what the other bugs are like. The fact that they are able to recognize, regardless of the mechanism of them learning that fact, that they were able to recognize that there is a person who helped one of their own and and because of that they can cool down and go from red to blue.
0: The, the there's a dream sequence uh at one point when she's when she goes down in the quicksand. Uh that I just I, I all I really noted is that I, I liked that the dream sequence is done in a different style of Mm. art than the rest of the movie
4: 80s uh, sketchy animation style that was popular then not not so much the take on me video thing but i was gonna say the singer of aha does not appear in this dream sequence (laughs) but he could as far as you know yeah and slowed down frame rate and it has i think what is probably the most overtly phallic shot in all of miyazaki movies when she is riding on i guess the horse or whatever with her father and they're showing it kind of from her perspective what is it like to be on there and the hilt of his sword is like you know yeah. poking up and shaped into very phallic matter moving back and forth as in like she's in the you know the father is impossibly large and his hands are huge and it's just a very you know i am a small little person and here's this big man who is dominating my life You Um, think that's
1: worse than the scene of the ostriches licking her face with their enormous pink tongues?
4: Yes, yes. I I don't know, man. Definitely. Um, uh, But yeah, that whole scene with the baby Om, I mean, it's another character moment, and it's got an an adorable song. uh, Is that a flashback or or a pure dream sequence? I was trying to decide that. Oh, The baby Om one, it was a flashback, I'm assuming. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, her, I, I took it as basically um, her life flashing before her eyes ah. and her remembering that happening a long time ago.
0: Uh, And also, I, I as I mentioned earlier, I, I think the quicksand thing is dumb. <laughs> That's like, oh, no, we are dying in quicksand. No. And then she wakes up and is like, oh, and then we emerged without like falling from the ceiling of this giant thing and dying. We emerged in a huge cave cave of that's good and that all the water is pure and the air is pure um I, every time i've seen this movie i've thought come on how does that work that's like magic. apparently in this world one can fall 600 feet
1: and
4: not die which is why they're so confident in their flight it's because
2: they fell with sand and landed on sand which looks so soft don't you think It's okay, so another MythBusters
4: episode can you fall with a bunch of sand and land on it and not die
2: yeah, probably. See, to me, I just I just sort of hand-waved that entire thing away. Yeah. There's yeah. a
0: reason that there's a dream sequence, and then she wakes up not knowing what happened. It's like, just never mind.
2: It was just this beautiful—it it was so beautiful. The, the cave and the—I mean, it also didn't make any sense that there's sunlight somehow getting down there. It's so mm-hmm. dark in the Sea of Decay to start with, right. and yet somehow there's light coming down and filters yeah. down. Yeah. It's more
0: It's beautifully lit. Yeah. It looked great. It's yep. the goodness of goodness that does that, I
1: think. Well, you see the the trees they soak up the sunlight and it spreads mm. to the top and then it falls to the earth as light
0: crystals. Yeah, that's I, I science.
1: cannon accepted.
0: Uh this nut tastes really weird, but it's good <laughs> yeah. for you. It's a that's, seed. Yeah. I
1: was uh I was very relieved when I discovered that uh Nausicaa was wearing pants because it's not immediately clear. <laughs>
2: the last time i watched this uh yes it took me a while to sort of figure that out and i had to like pause it and screen cap mm-hmm. and i was like what is going on here so yeah first thing when i started watching this with steven i was like by the way just please note she is in fact wearing pants
4: they're, Le- they're just kind of flesh colored yeah flesh colored leggings from the skin of some animal right mm-hmm.
1: we do still get a lot of scenes of her skirt blowing up from behind which is yep yeah. and those
4: are tight fitting
2: pants
1: yeah
4: yep the giant warrior i guess we could talk about um yeah it, that i great. love how that, that is such warrior. an anti climax like this big warrior they're building it up and they bring it out before it was done cooking and it just falls apart just like yeah. they said it would but you know you got you got to go to go to war with the warrior you have you know that too feels like something that's
1: somewhat of a missed opportunity that would have been a lot more impressive had they stretched this out longer mm-hmm. into multiple movies yeah
3: i almost wish it wasn't there because it just when I think about the movie, when I think back on it, I never remember that it's there anyway. It clearly doesn't add anything for me, other than some like flashy mm-hmm. lights at the end. Um, so I don't. It, it's a weird thing to me. Well, it highlights the
1: futility of what they're trying to do, right? I mean, they're so hell bent on killing uh, each other that they're willing and, and to, and that
4: they're going to go right back to the old ways. Like if if you, yeah. you know they don't yeah. have the access to these weapons, but if you give one of them access to the weapons, immediately they're just like, we got to use this to kill the other guys. Like this, right. is, it's their first instinct. It's fighting over the weapon is the reason half these two things are warring with each other. Because oh, I heard they have a weapon. We have to go take it from. Them. Oh, we'll take it back. Oh, we'll use it against them. And then in the end, like they they use it against nature instead of against man. Is it like oh, we need to regroup. Let's not fight each other. The omer coming. Let's use this big man-made weapon against them. And it falls apart because it's like you can't you know you can't fight against nature. Don't even try. um And they have to have the scene where he shoots out the big thing and it makes a gigantic mushroom cloud. Uh, boy, Japanese can draw mushroom clouds like nobody's business. Like very dramatic, big flash of light. It makes no sense that he drew a line with this laser and it makes a mushroom cloud, but damn it, we're going to have a mushroom cloud and it's going to look good. And it doesn't matter because the ohm keep coming.
0: And it means also, you know, you're ruining it. You're doing the violent thing that led us to this terrible, uh, terrible place. And that that's the message of that firing it. Although I did have that moment of the the uh, simplicity of the plot where when it needs to not be there anymore? It just dies, and they basically are like, "Oh, I guess it died."
4: It turns into orange goo, which is anime, anime shorthand for guts. Yeah, is not not <laughs> unique to Miyazaki.
0: Yeah, I just I, I, it's very convenient that it, it it's a very uh, fearsome weapon until it needs to not be
4: anymore. At which point well, but they didn't it's let it not. finish cooking. Like it, yes. it, it's it's fun that it's like a biological weapon and like you know they're they're trying to like get it back up to fighting strength and like oh you can't take it out. It needs to be in the oven for twenty more minutes. It's like no, I'm taking it out now. It's like oh,
2: all right, well, mm-hmm. and I do feel like that the, the use of it like but that by that point uh, Kushana is very. I mean, she's just sort of. Uh, blinded by battle rage. But I did like when she's first introduced at the beginning her the the way she's going about things is really crappy but her motivations are actually understandable it's not like she's a mustache twirling villain she wants to take the world back for humans because you know the the sea of decay is an awful thing as far as she knows she doesn't know the truth about it because she hasn't fallen 600 feet through sand so she just wants to to help her people and and not just to help her people to help the people of the valley too and i i like the idea that that I can see things from her perspective and and that she's not just evil for the sake of, of evil. And then, you know, she sort of goes the wrong direction as things go along and just gets more and more fed up and angry and just wants to fight, fight, fight. But at least at the beginning, she was a, a somewhat more interesting character.
4: She's a proto-Lady Eboshi, basically. Lady Eboshi is uh, Princess Mononoke, the supposed uh-huh. antagonist woman, but you are forced to, you know recognize that or at least you know understand where she's coming from uh because her motive she does lots of good things and her motivations seem to make sense logically she just happens to be on the wrong side of the magical world that miyazaki has set up in which you really shouldn't go against nature because he's writing the story damn it and you're gonna lose mm-hmm. uh, miyazaki's a really
0: pastoral kind of guy I, I, you know the it, japan is interesting because it's got these incredibly dense urban centers and then it's got the countryside and i you know I, with all of his work uh, a love of the countryside and i think a skepticism of technology and density of uh of uh you know big cities seems to be a theme that i see and so uh, I was thinking of that when when I when we get this kind of imperialism of the troops coming in and saying, well, we're from the we're from this you know bigger civilization and we're going to take over you quaint little people who live off the land here in this special little valley. Um, we're gonna we're gonna take over for you, and I, I felt like that was right up Miyazaki's alley of saying um, the these are the people who live off the land. They understand they're closer to the earth than you are. They understand it better than you. It's always going to be better for the the small group of people people out in the countryside than it is for some outsiders from the city who think they know better than the people from the country and you know this I, I see this in kiki i see this in totoro i mean this is something that he does
4: uh again and again yeah well they have the luxury of not having been developed because they're protected by the wind and they can afford to not have to they don't they don't have to fight wars with other people they're in this secluded valley they're protected they don't have to build defenses against the toxic jungle they're not constantly fighting against bugs and doing stuff like that it's all like they're they're kind of like laid back, like, oh, we ha-. and then the other ones, you imagine the other humans are have a much much more difficult struggle against nature, and so they're all bulked up and they're fighting against each other, and then the valley gets in the middle of this. Like, we, we were just here doing our thing and being our little village, and you guys come and basically destroy mo- almost the entire thing. They have to burn down that 300-year-old forest. They crash the plane. They're fighting each other's there. The, the, then the Omer coming towards them. It's not, not a good movie for the valley. And there's all the the, the bucket heads,
0: the helmet heads. Are, they're the worst. That's true.
4: You know, and even just strictly from
2: an aesthetic perspective, I actually have that in my notes, too, that it was a really neat juxtaposition to see the the military airplanes with all that gray metal, you know, with lots of rivets and stuff flying in over this pastoral beauty of the valley of the wind and there's such a contrast between the two of those it made that scene even more sort of you know heart clutching because it's like oh no not only are they being invaded they're being invaded in a style that's so completely different from the life that we have seen them living so far it was painful
1: Life is just better when your primary industries are crops and windmills.
4: <laughs> well, you do wonder if that's sustainable, though, Like, because they do show, like, when she, she meets up with Lord Yupa, and they're, like, on their way back home, there's a bunch of windmills and stuff out there, and you're like, so maybe this whole windmill being protected by the wind culture used to be spread out much farther. And like, this is the last bastion because they're wandering through towns that seem to have windmills just like theirs that are close to their home, but that are totally overrun by the toxic jungle and the desert and all this other stuff. And so they're still safe. But I mean, again, Nausicaa's a question. Is this, is this it for humans? It will, will the, the sea of decay take over everything? Are we going to make it? Um, It's a multi-generational question for sure, but the answer is not clear, especially since they haven't really done anything to fortify themselves. They're just basically relying on the wind and uh, doing enough farming to get themselves uh, through each winter, I guess.
3: Another thing that we could talk about even briefly is kind of we talked about how cool Nausicaa is in the beginning and how resourceful she is and how smart she is. But we haven't talked about like her little underground lair and how she figures out that the plants aren't the toxic things. It's the soil and the water that's toxic and how like basically she's motivated to I don't know, like we're not told about any kind of school or any kind of scientific discovery. Like, obviously, they're they're very into aviation in, in these cultures, but we're not really told about, like, scientific theories or biology or whatever. So she's basically, as far as I'm concerned, has, like, learned how to science on her own <laughs> and has created, like, this underground uh, not a greenhouse, but this underground thing. And she's motivated because her her father is very sick and then there's later there's an old man who's like yeah nausea is going to figure out what's going on and make me better and like so so we've we've got this thread throughout you know we've got the presumably the flashback of her with the baby ohm and um and her like crying and clutching it and trying to protect it and and like this kind loving scientific resourceful young woman and how freaking cool that
4: is yeah. <laughs> and, and obama's like no no it's all about legends they're gonna save us right. like, oh, <laughs> science, scientific <laughs> method i can we can figure things out right. her, again her village doesn't seem to be all about the science they're into agriculture fine and somehow yeah. they've got these planes although you're not quite sure how that fits in with the rest of the stuff because it seems way more advanced gliders maybe but that gunship i don't know where the hell that came from but it looks like the style of their village but no one else is like uh, you know, studying crops that are like spore resistant or doing gene splicing. And she's down there. Essentially, she's like Isaac Newton and, and Mendel, uh, you know, all rolled into one. Well, well, you know, and she has to do it in secret because it's not like a supported activity. She's not like she's the apprentice to the science program of the valley. Right. She is the science program of the valley.
1: No, I think the suggestion is that everybody else in the village is too busy, uh, planting crops and making sure the windmills run on time.
4: The luxury, well, that, that is how it worked a lot, you know, back in the early scientific days. Like, who, who had time to do with science stuff, like the nobility or the, the upper classes? Otherwise, you were, you know, you had to work all day so you wouldn't die in the winter. I mean, she has the time to, to,
1: to go into the uh, Sea of Decay at the beginning and and collect the spore and then find the, uh, the ohm shell, which then they say, okay, well, later when we have some time, we'll go in and we'll get that for our tools. So... I think just by necessity. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm actually kind of confused as to why she's so secretive about it, other than that perhaps the rest of the villagers will be so disturbed by the fact that she's hanging on to talk what they consider to be toxic spores. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I think
4: that's, I think that's, that's, it. It. that's it's, it. It's like the yeah. baby ohm. Like, why are you keeping a baby ohm? Like, even during that sequence, I remember the first time I watched it, kind of understanding a dad. It's like do you really want your kid to have his own because they look cute but like you know like, like monkeys they grow up to things that can tear your face off or worse so maybe you know and they take the thing away oh don't kill it oh they're going to kill it like because you can't have that stuff in the village so the same thing she's being secretive because she's learned as she's grown people don't like it when you bring stuff back from the toxic jungle and go look right. what I found they're like uh, no please you know because if one of those things gets on their plants they got to burn the whole forest down so you can kind of understand why she's hiding it because, again, because there is no culture right. supporting her right her, you know, let me figure out how to save the world uh, with science uh, endeavors.
1: But she knows Lord Yupa will be down with it because she invites him into her secret room at one
4: point. Yeah, he's cool. He's the cool uncle.
2: <laughs> yep, he's he's been places. He yeah. knows stuff.
4: He's, he's the cool uncle who will stop your sword thrust with his wrist. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's the best defense mechanism, but it it worked.
0: The uh, yeah, there there you get he got he gets some cool sword fighting stuff. There's a couple of amusing sword fights where there's uh where. You know, there's a big, there's a lot of back and forth, and then uh, somebody sort of like just wills their way to push a whole bunch of people away from them, which is a classic, classic maneuver where you go, Oh, now I'm fighting three of you. Push, and they all fall down. It's like, Yeah, I'm cool that way. He's definitely cool. It almost makes up for his terrible hairstyle choices. I want to ask about the end of the movie. Um, so Nausicaa is seemingly dead, and uh, then she is sort of like uh, touched by many tentacles of many ohms, and she <laughs> is raised into the sky and is uh, brought back to life and, uh, and then walks across the, the, golden, uh, uh, the golden fields Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to return and 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 fulfill the prophecy. Uh, what did everybody think about this, uh, you know, this uh, d- death and resurrection at the end of the movie for Nausicaa?
2: I didn't think she died. I just thought she was very badly injured. And no. they <laughs> healed her with their, you know, totally scientific healing powers oh. that they have because they <laughs> the have tentacles. evolved over a thousand years.
4: <laughs> to heal humans, yeah. no, I, I, yep. I, I give it a little bit of a magic angle, but the, the important point is not whether she's dead. The important point is... She's choosing to sacrifice herself in an attempt to save her village. She has no Mm -hmm. expectation that she's going to live when she's sitting there with the baby Ohm and the things charging towards her. Like, it's not like she thinks, oh, this will be fine. They'll stop right before they get to me. She's making a brave decision and her brave decision is not to defeat the Ohm by commandeering the big warrior and shooting them all until they stay away from the village. She is trying to save the village in her way, which is they're mad about this let's give the baby a give the baby back because it's the right thing to do and B this is the only reasonable way to save our city our valley we shouldn't be shooting them with uh, lasers from a, uh, a giant and to make this happen you know I'm gonna sacrifice myself even saving the ohm I'm gonna like stop it from going into the acid water because it doesn't know by having myself go into the acid I'm gonna you know like she she wins the day by sacrificing herself whether or not she actually went all the way dead before they brought her back to life or not and that that is another example of Heroism does not equal, uh, vanquishing your foes with strength. Like, it's not, they're they're not equivalent. Like, manliness and macho-ness and all that type of stuff is not the only way to be a hero. Yeah, I don't
1: think she is dead, although it's clear that the villagers from afar think
0: yeah, that she the kid, is. Yeah, the kids are shouting very loudly that she's dead, and the grandma is <laughs> yeah. saying, yeah, probably, but probably they're, she's dead. They're good. all little doctors. <laughs> she fulfills a prophecy then. Everybody okay with a prophecy fulfillment? That was another sort of rolling eyes uh, thing that I did. Yeah. which is oh, she, not, not only does she have to be a princess, but she has to fulfill a prophecy. Okay.
2: It was it was cute. I, to me, it sort of fit along with with the bit of mystical wisdom that I was reading from the Oms. I I felt like the the idea of of a prophecy bringing it all together was was kind of cute and I, I would have been fine without it but having it in there was okay and and like Steve I was really cool with the idea that her dress became blue because of the Ohm's blood just staining it except for the design on the front which is apparently
4: resistant to Ohm blood and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and yeah so I was I was good with it yeah I mean that's the, that's the movie that's the formula you're going to be the hero you're going to fulfill the prophecy the twist on it this time is that if you're young uh, and steeped in uh, an, an 80s culture like I was it doesn't occur to you that she's going to be the, the hero and so they have to hammer it home in the thing but in the end It is a formula movie about, you know, saving the world from destruction through heroism. And she's a princess and she fulfills a prophecy. And that's that's how that's how these movies work. So, you know, it's I I totally accept it because this, I think, is a great example of that genre, that it does things in an interesting way, even though it basically follows every point of the formula.
3: Well, and it's 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 very Miyazaki, right? Like the the whole mysticism and prophecy type stuff is there. It's just it's in line with what he does, pretty much all the time
0: (laughs) does everybody have to be the chosen one you know does it but i guess that i guess so
1: well in 1984 you did
0: yes people weren't tired of
1: those tropes yet in 1984 they were just something that you did well not in animation maybe maybe in uh in japanese animation but certainly not in what we were seeing in the states
0: that's what you got that was uh that was your classic uh tropes all right, anything else we should talk about that that we haven't brought up so far? If you've got some things on your list, now would be a time to get them off your list and into the podcast.
1: I really like the exchange where the Tolmekian soldier pops up and says, "Counselor, we await your orders." And he responds, "Shut up." And the guy says, "Yes, sir." Oh yeah, dips his I, head back down again. That
0: was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what his do you want us to do? Shut Nothing. Up. Go away. All right. <laughs> yep. Got it. Yeah. That was the little chain of command. Yeah, that's that's exactly how they should always go, right? Just go away. All right. Got it. Stop I like the,
4: uh, the credit sequence, which is uh, like in Kiki, where, you know, the movie is over, right? But they give you the uh, the main story is over, but we want to tell you how all the people that you care about, what happened to them. Yeah. The it's an epilogue. Not, it's not going to be a thing. Yeah, exactly. But mm-hmm. it's going to be the credits are going to roll over. There's going to be no dialogue. So the things we learn in this one is... You basically have peace between the valley and Kushana. They don't resume that battle that they were going to have when they were interrupted from the om. The Tolmikians leave the valley, uh, peaceably, we imagine. Uh, new windmills and wells are built. Nausicaa is there helping them, yeah. you know, get their, their feet back under them. They plant they replant the forest the forest. For the forest that was burned down. She teaches the kids to fly gliders, um, which I, I don't know if this is a new democratization of the gliding lessons. Previously, only the royal people had because We don't see anyone else on gliders Earlier in the movie, but it, in the credit mm-hmm. sequence, she's like, "Hey kids, I'm going to show you all how to be glider flyers like me," which is adorable. And the air will be filled with their high pitched screams. Right. Well, <laughs> the, she just like chucks them off a cliff, hanging onto a wing. Is like that doesn't. And she's like, "Well, I guess the ones that fall, you didn't make it." <laughs> <laughs> that's like, like look, that's
0: a, look, I'm flying. Look, I'm
4: flying. <laughs> yeah, Asbel goes out with exploring with yupa They're just like off the two of them. You know, Asbel does not stay in marry nausicaa like they do, not, they do not live happily mm-hmm. ever after. He goes off. He's going to be an explorer and seeing how what what, what the other humans are up to and checking the extent of the, of the sea of decay with Lord Yupa, uh, and then uh, bugs be bugging.
2: Yeah, I actually because because I ended up taking my computer into my room and uh, watching most of the movie by myself. The battery on my computer died exactly as the first credit came up and I was so tired I was falling asleep anyway. So I just shut my computer and, and, and set it down and was like, Yay, I watched the movie. This morning when I opened my computer up and, and plugged it in, it immediately started playing from the place that it left off and I got to see all of this nice falling action and found find out, you know, what happened to the characters. So I, I felt like I, I had a nice little I had a nice little sleep on it before I was reminded of, of what happened to all these characters. I, I loved.
1: There's some scenes
4: there where they're working on the windmills as well. Yeah, I so said the, the mm-hmm. new the new windmills and the wells. Yeah. Like they're getting they're getting their town back into shape and uh, drilling the new wells to the clean water.
1: The impression I got from that was that perhaps they had worked out a way to pull up pure soil and water, so that when they replant the forest, they're replanting what is effectively a non toxic forest. But they already was, knew how
4: to get clean water because they said this is just like the right. water from our well. At but home. the soil like, was tainted. So yeah. I don't know if they found out a way to get soil, but like, but the, the but there's there's if, sand at the bottom
1: of their well that's pure as well. So
4: mm-hmm. yeah, like if you if you take this movie to, to be like, oh, this was nuclear war, right? That's not how radiation works. Like plants don't make it go away. Like it's it's a little These bit plants tougher. Plants do, John. Yeah, a little bit tougher. I know you want to do, but like it's a little bit tougher nut to crack <laughs> with the whole subatomic particles thing. Like it is you know, radiation and decay really don't uh, don't stand up to. Uh, biological means of dealing with it it's going to be there until it's not going to be there but anyway uh this is all you know you can make up the rules of this world uh however you want um uh, but yeah like you would think like if everything is polluted there like you see basically the people getting you know like the bumps on their hands or whatever you're assuming the father and all you know this is the fate of all men who live near the jungle like we're all just going to die young from presumably a cancer-like ailment uh, which seems like kind of a bummer, but you're like, but how do you even live to that age if all of your soil is tainted or whatever? So, I don't know. It's kind of like the uh, the spaceships in Star Wars that move at the speed of plot. The the, the toxicology <laughs> of the, uh, the Sea of Decay uh, does what it needs to do for the purposes of this story.
1: As satisfying as that ending montage is, I still find the Miyazaki ending comical, where <laughs> everything is resolved and boom, the movie's over
4: now here's the montage it's it's called a happy ending I'm not sure if you're familiar with it but it's, no it's, but it's it's so most abrupt. kids movies
1: I've seen happy endings that don't don't last a I like that I don't
4: want it to have the big long drawn out thing I that's why I love the credit sequence you don't need to have any dialogue you just need to show like scenes like little vignettes of like uh, you know it, j- just enough to know what's what's happening with them who you know who is with who what are they doing are they rebuilding are people happy are people sad who is leaving who's staying? Uh, that's I I love that. That's the perfect way to wrap up a movie. Rather than like otherwise, you have to figure out some way to end it. End it at the you know at the resolution of the major conflict. You don't even need to. I, I forget where they ended. I think they just ended with like, oh, she's alive and we're all happy. That is the mm-hmm. end. You don't need to drag it out anymore.
1: I wonder if this this was technically the first Studio Ghibli film. Is that correct? Uh,
3: the studio was so. formed after this movie. This was oh, like okay. a movie
4: that made yeah. Studio Ghibli. Yeah. yeah. This is early times though. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but if you think of like future Boy Conan and other things, like you know, building up to the Miyazaki that we would come to know, a lot of this is all proto. You know, later, even though, yeah, if this one wasn't Studio, if Studio Ghibli hadn't yet been formed or whatever, like technically speaking, corporation-wise, if you look at this, you see a line straight from this through to especially uh, Castle in the Sky and and Princess Mononoke.
1: I'm just wondering if the fact that they packed so much story and so much stuff into this movie necessitated the use of that uh, that montage over the credits instead of actually drawing out the ending more. And that informed future Miyazaki films because it seemed to work well.
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't think he made up that thing. It's a lot, Lots of movies do that, but it's, it's satisfying. And if you're an animator, oh, we get to do a bunch of animation and we don't have to deal with uh, dialogue or moving lips. It's just people smiling and doing happy things and being together and... It's a, it's a visual payoff for watching the rest of the movie and coming to enjoy these characters. You just want you want to see them be successful and happy and uh, have things be resolved. Um, and you don't need there to be a, a plot in that part.
0: All right, we're gonna wrap it up here. Uh, it was fun to revisit uh, *Nausicaa* and talk about it for more than like. Eight minutes, like we did on that one podcast, that one time. But we will be back, obviously, at some point in the future with another Miyazaki movie. I would like to thank the members of uh, this edition of the Miyazaki Club for joining me tonight. Aline Sims, thanks for being here.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Erica Ensign, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jason. And all I have to say is la 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 la
2: la la. <laughs> la It's going to be in my head forever forever and ever
0: Steve Lutz this nut tastes really weird <laughs> <laughs> boy if I had a nickel
1: <laughs> it's been a pleasure Jason I'm glad I could join you all tonight uh, I agree I don't think I like this one quite as much as the previous two but it is a fascinating movie and I did enjoy the experience So.
4: and John Syracuse thank you as always thought I was going to get a fox squirrel instead I got a baby Ohm, which is cute but not quite the same yeah mm. you can't keep them you gotta, you gotta right. take them
0: back. <laughs> Throw them back. Otherwise, you get your house gets crushed by ohms if you don't take <laughs> it back. Do
1: not feed them after midnight either. No, that's a big problem. Mm-hmm.
0: And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of the Incomparable. I've been your host, Jason Snell. We will see you next week.
4: What a year! What a year! Nineteen eighty four was.